Okay, so if you are new to our class this semester, we are walking through this book, God is Stranger, um, by Krish Kandia, talking about the strange ways in which God presents himself to people in the Old and New Testament and the strange ways in which God presents himself to us in the current day. So this week's is Isaiah. The chapter heading is Isaiah and the Stranger, the God who turns life upside down, in which a mourner meets a stranger and is given an impossible task, and we discover what we should do when worship is a waste of time. So, um, this chapter is particularly about, we've talked on and off over the last couple of weeks about the assumptions that we make about God, but this chapter is particularly about that. Um, the, as we walk through the story of Isaiah, we see that um, Isaiah had certain assumptions about the way that God would act and who God was and how he would present himself that proved to be shockingly false. So I wanted to start out this morning with um, a couple of assumptions, common assumptions that we tend to have about God and about the Bible and let us kind of um, get into the mindset of blowing our assumptions apart this morning. So. Uh, the first one is, the Bible is God's last will and testament. It, have anybody grown up with that particular assumption that the Bible is sort of God's last word on everything and that he's not speaking with us currently? Um, God is powerful, Jesus is docile, and the Holy Spirit is an unpredictable X factor. It's kind of what we know about the three of those. God is mostly interested in getting people to heaven with him. That's kind of his primary concern for us here on earth. Um, God cares more about what I do than who I am. And these are assumptions, again, that we, we uh, are either taught or tend to work with, even if we don't know we're working with him. And um, God doesn't heal people anymore. That's what medicine is for. I got these off the internet, by the way. And when God says, I will provide... What he really means is if you have a good plan and do everything you can to make it happen, you'll get what you need. <laughs> Someone's like, yeah, that resonates. <laughs> so are there any other kind of maybe funny or common assumptions that you guys grew up with that you're working through now about God or about Christianity or about the Bible? <laughs> yeah, it's a topic wide open like door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are a lot of them. Stephen and I, in our individual faith and our faith together over the last couple of years, have worked through a lot of them. The assumptions that we grew up with as kids. Um, I grew up with, in the Southern Baptist tradition, so I grew up in a highly evangelical tradition. If you were in a public place and you were not witnessing to a stranger, you were not sort of fulfilling God's will for you. Um, so that was one of the really strong assumptions I grew up with, and as an introvert, that doesn't always really work well with one's personality. Um, so the assumptions that we have about God, one of the things that the author says is, what if those assumptions and prejudices, prejudices have actually made God more of a stranger to us without us even realizing? So I wanted to ask, and this you don't have to answer, it's just a question to think over. When is the last time that you set out to learn something about God without having an ulterior motive, without needing something or wanting something from him? 
When was the last time you set out to learn something simply because you wanted to know God better? You wanted to get to know him better. You wanted to know his unique personality better. It's a hard question because we don't typically do it without also having something attached to it. We don't typically um, allow ourselves to walk into spaces where we have questions or doubts about God unless we are forced into those spaces by life circumstances um, or by the things that we need or want in life. So, read a quote here. So as we start talking about um, Isaiah and his prophecies, I want us to kind of meditate and think over this. Isaiah's prophecies are vital for the church today because the whole book speaks to a people who are comfortable in their knowledge of God and yet profoundly mistaken about him. So the, um, the book of Isaiah is not chronological. It's a book of prophecy. Um, and the compilers of all these prophecies um, have done it. There, it works in about three sections. And some people will argue that because it covers such a large span of history, Isaiah is actually three writers, um, with the first writer being the actual person we know as Isaiah. The first chapter of Isaiah is not Isaiah's calling, which you typically see with the prophet books. Um, the other books typically start with whatever unique experience the prophet has that calls him into ministry, but Isaiah does not start that way. So if you will, turn to Isaiah 1. The book of Isaiah, the first chapter, works kind of like an executive summary. If you um, tend to write a lot of research papers, you know what that is. Uh, but it's the beginning, uh, sort of the summary at the beginning of the whole piece that will tell you what everything is about. Um, so the, I'm not going to read it all out loud, but Isaiah 1 kind of gives a summary of the entire chapter. The nation of Israel has disappointed God greatly, particularly in the areas of worship. They are committing acts of worship um, that are ritually technically correct, but have a serious lack of heart, a serious lack of justice. Yeah, you're glowing. <laughs> um, and a serious lack of attention to the oppressed, to the poor, to the followers, to the widow. And the Lord is saying, this is not the kind of worship that I want from you. Um, this is not, these are not the kinds of things that I want from you. Here are the kinds of things that I want from you. So um, Isaiah's calling, we're going to start there. So we'll skip over the first chapter. So if somebody could get to Isaiah 6 for me, please. And read 1 through 8. Any takers? In the king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated at a, at a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above, above him were surface, surface, seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole world. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have lived among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the 
seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Okay, so I want us to um, think about the idea of theophany for a few minutes. So theophany is any time that the Lord reveals his glory. Um, so we see this throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. When Jesus walked across the water, that's a theophany. Um, when the Lord passes Moses in the cleft of the rock, those are theophanies. So the Lord pr- decides to present his glory to Isaiah. And I want us to think about in each of the theophanies that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Lord presents himself in a different way. And it always has a little bit to do with the, the, the character of the individual that he's presenting himself to. Um, so in the stories that we've talked about previously, um, the Lord presents himself to Abraham as three random travelers. That's how he chooses to present himself. He presents himself to Lot in the form of two angels. Um, he presents himself to Gideon as a lonely man out on the desert. Uh, he, in other stories, he presents himself to Moses as a burning bush. And he presents himself to the Hebrews as they're passing through, um, the, as they're leaving Egypt as pillars of wind and fire. So take a couple of seconds and consider these different expressions of the Lord's glory. And each of them had a particular purpose in speaking to or in representing himself to whoever he was representing himself to. Um, So why do you think, this is a really strange occurrence, right? Like this is a lot of stuff that that we have a really difficult time wrapping our minds around. There's these seraphim, we're not really sure what they look like, they've got these wings, they're over their eyes. and allow, I, th- I think it's important that we kind of allow our imaginations to flow here a little bit, that oftentimes we read um, visions like this in here and in particularly in the book of Revelation, and we tune out a little bit because that's really weird, right? And we've got no way to imagine what that felt like or looked like. Um, we have no idea really what these creatures look like. It's hard to imagine. And so we kind of push that over into the column of like strange things about the Bible and we don't touch it very often. So I want us to kind of imagine um, what this would looked and felt like for Isaiah and why the Lord decided to present himself in this particular way. So Isaiah's in the temple. He's probably um, doing some sort of ritual, ritual that was pretty regular for him. And the Lord decides to mess him up a little bit. Why do you think that he presented himself in this way? Any guesses? I don't have an answer. I'm not about to reveal some great biblical truth to you, so don't worry about it. I don't know if this is exactly answering your question, but while you were saying all of that, a thought that I had is that God presents himself in different ways to all of these people because of who they are or the situation that they're in. And I think if we go back to those common misconceptions that we have about God, I think one common misconception I've had about God is that he he is stagnant in his ways and he doesn't know my personality or he doesn't, he wouldn't um, meet me where I am, that he just is what he is and that I have to figure out a way to meet him in that. But I think that what you're talking about proves that 
he he does meet these people where they are because of who they are and um, so I don't know why this relates to Isaiah this creature with wings but um, in some way it probably does you know I was just thinking you were saying we look and we take these things you know we just steer away from them and, but that's weird but I remember meeting this lady in Dallas and I never heard of this chapter but when she, she was telling me about it and she was I saw the Lord sitting on a throne I lifted up I said and his veil filled the temple and with two they these seraphims covered their face and their I mean, to her, it was like not something you just dismiss. It was like the most amazing experience. And I think that we should think about it that way. So, sort of, you know, just amazing things about this appearance. Yeah, I think you're on to something. Because as weird and as shocking as it is to us, it appeared to be pretty weird and shocking to Isaiah as well. So weird that he changed his occupation and decided to dedicate the rest of his life to not being heard by anyone. So it's not something, when we run across these, these things in the Bible that are really strange to us, they're probably also strange to the people that they're happening to. Um, and so I want us to kind of focus in on here because we talked a couple of weeks ago about Gideon and how Gideon had this particular character flaw. Um, he, he had this just like inferiority complex big time, right? Like, so he's, he begins his conversation with the messenger of the Lord as, who am I to do this? I'm the lowliest, the lowliest, the lowliest. Um, and the Lord says, that's not what I'm concerned about here. Um, I'm not so much concerned about your position, but he, his actions display that he is actually concerned about Gideon's inferiority complex because he chooses to force Gideon to work in such a way that would actually directly address this, right? So he, he forces Gideon to go against the Moabite army, which is something around, I think, twelve or 15,000, do you remember that word, number, um, with 300 people. Now, if you have an inferiority complex and you already feel like you're going to fail, you don't have what it takes, you are not worthy of anyone's time or attention, and you're forced against to go forced to go against a, a force of that incredible strength with 300 people who were chosen because they lapped the water like dogs, not for the pretty particular fighting ability. Like, what is that going to do for you, right? But challenge that in such an extreme way. So there's still a lot of mystery around why the Lord chooses to present himself in this way to Isaiah, other than to shock and surprise him. Um, but what we do know is that whatever this sort of clicked with in Isaiah's brain, it immediately forced him to recognize his own primary character flaw, which is what the Lord typically does to us, right? When he reveals himself to us, um, it allows us to see clearly something that has been working under the surface for a long time. And for Isaiah, the thing that he recognizes, the thing that he identifies in these first couple of verses is, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. 
and I am from a people of unclean lips. So although we don't know much about Isaiah prior to, we're like slowly coming along here. (laughs) Although we don't know much about Isaiah prior to this moment, he identifies his central character flaw for us. He is a man of unclean lips from a nation of unclean lips. Um, And so the Lord, uh, if we look at the next couple of verses, the Lord is going to, just like Gideon, he's going to directly address this particular character flaw. Um, in order to make Isaiah the person and to um, forgive Isaiah of the main sin that would forbid him from doing the Lord's work from here, here forward. So he says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs, uh, taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So the symbolism here is that this burning coal, which would have been used in ritual sacrifice, um, is not necessarily something that destroys, it is something that purifies. This is what the purpose of this would have been um, already, Isaiah would have known that this was the purpose in the ritual. So he takes the burning coal and he purifies Isaiah for the purpose of his ministry moving forward. So again, the Lord, this is something that I think we need to come to terms with because we're taught over and over again The Lord can use anyone. He'll choose anyone. He chooses the weak. He chooses the sinner. He chooses the lowly. And that is true. Don't ever let anyone tell you that it's not. It's a a resounding promise that we base our faith on. But he doesn't let us stay that way. And I think so often in the Old Testament, we get distracted with what the Lord does through people. And we pay much less attention to what the people look like when the Lord is done with them. And that's not always pretty, as we learned with the story of Gideon, right? When we tell our children the story of Gideon with the jars and the, um, you know, the Moabite army and chasing them down, we stop after Gideon's victory. And yet the scripture goes on to tell us the rest of Gideon's life, he fell away from the Lord. The Lord became something that um, was just for the use of glorification for him. He used the Lord to create his own prestige to create his own reputation and then he led his nation back into the idolatry that he was called to lead them out of so when we focus on the things that the lord does through people those are still really important parts of the story but we tend to forget (coughs) what the lord does to people because that's kind of a scary thing to think about as he's working through them so i want us to um I want us to keep that in the back of our minds as we're talking about Isaiah and as we continue to talk about the next several chapters of this book, that these stories aren't just about what the Lord is doing through people, but they're also about what the Lord is doing to them while he's working through them. All right, so. Okay. So one of the things that the author of the book talks about is that the Lord has specifically chosen Isaiah because he's found someone who's willing to speak his language. That's why he purifies Isaiah's lips, because his main occupation is going to be speaking, right? Um, His main occupation is going to be prophesying. So I think that that naturally sort of leads to the question of, okay, but what is God's language? And how do we become the kind of people who are willing to speak it? So I want to um, 
kind of float through a couple of verses in Isaiah here. So if somebody can pull up for me one uh, chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, and there are five things that we're going to read here, so don't be shy. 1, 16 through 17. Somebody confirm that they have that one. <laughs> All right, then you can take 10, 1 through 2. Um, I need 16, 3 through 5. Any takers? I got it. Okay, Mary Nell's got it. I need 29, 18 through 21. I can do that one. And then I need 58, 6 through 8. All right, so we're just going to rapid fire these. Um, let me get there. Is everybody where they need to be? 16, one through five. 16, three through five. Yeah, okay. So remember, the question that we're asking here is what is God's language and why was Isaiah willing to speak it? Um, so when you hear the person in front of you stop, just go. All right, so if you'll start us, one, 16 through 17. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop what, doing, stop what you're doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil that they may make the fatherless their prey. Make up your mind, Moab says, render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives, do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David. One who, in judging, seeks justice and speeds the calls of righteousness. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man to, out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves and who lies in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So, according to the book of Isaiah, according to Isaiah's prophecies, what is God's primary focus and desire for his people? persecuted. I mean, if you read and listen to the words that are asked, there's an aggressor 
there's an oppressor on every opposite side of that person, so you're taking the side and will have to defend. I mean, it's implied, and at least what I heard, uh, at least some adversity, if not own persecution, that you're going to have to be yoked with to do the calling that's being asked of you. Mm -hmm. And we don't always acknowledge that. At least that's what I heard. Yeah. So I think, in my interpretation, there are two pivotal pieces to this. The first is to free those that are oppressed, to care for the widow and stranger. The second is those is to oppose those who are the oppressors, um, to work actively and intentionally to not just care for those who are um, feeling the burden of oppression, but to oppose oppression. Um, so I want to go back to one of the assumptions that we started with at the beginning of the, our uh, time here this morning. And I want to kind of open this up for discussion because this is a pretty large leap. It's a hard thing for us to talk through, and I don't have the answer. I'm just trying to ask the question. So one of the assumptions that we started with was um, God cares. Oh, sorry. God is mostly interested in getting people to heaven with him. So based upon what we've read in Isaiah and what we've talked about over the last several weeks, how does this assumption hold up? that in its purest form happens, community on earth, more will come. 
but I think sometimes we skip that step as something that's not as active or is needed or a calling that is upon our shoulders as believers. There's so many things to do here to make the world a better place. And uh, I've just been struck recently by, since our trip to, we went to the parks, Grand Canyon and places like that. And, you know, to see, to hear, you know, it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. But there in that park, they made us know that there are places all over the world that people can't even have never seen stars because we have man has put so much artificial light out there that you can't see stars anymore and so just taking care of nature the natural world you know we would be we've been called to be stewards of the earth and to take care of it and uh, have dominion but that's a that's carrying it too far when we have so much so they're trying to designate dark places so that and these people places in the park where things are dark people are coming to them because it they want to see doctors stars and you just go outside and in Nashville you will not see any stars maybe one or two and so there's just so much he's given us to do here on this earth to make it a better place. Does this, for you guys, complicate or simplify what we're supposed to be doing here on earth? I've always thought of um, like the things that it said that God wanted us to do in Isaiah that we just read. Um, I've always thought of God being among the poor and the the widows and the hungry even more than he is with other people. Um, so I think when it's telling you, hey, go go be with these people, I think you're really likely to have a meaningful encounter with God there that could be heavenly. was in the Dollar Tree the other day and this lady came in and she was, I made a comment about how good it was to be able to buy some cheap things and she starts telling me about her ministry and she goes, she says, I'm gathering things together to go, I take things to the homeless under the bridge and I said, where, where is that? And she's like, I go along Harding maybe Old Hickory and Nolensville. There's a bridge over there. A lot of people go live over there. I take them um, hand wipes, snacks, uh, products that are women need. And uh, she's, a lot of them don't want to hug me. They act like they don't want me to touch them. They smell bad. I go over and I this is one person doing this. And uh, so, and she's poor, poor, really poor. But, uh, she says, I'll read the Bible to them and I'll sing. And uh, I, I left this pretty stunned at all this lady had done, you know. And, uh, 
like you say, she was seeing God in those poor people. She said she'll go, she has a profession and she makes pies and cakes. And she says, I'll go in to these barber shops and then uh, I will, the first thing they say is, what's a good word? And she said, I'll tell them, God loves you. And, uh, and she says, and I'll, I'll tell them, I need some business, y'all, you know. But, but anyway, she, it's pretty remarkable to think what one person could do. I think that uh, kind of going back to your premise, that original assumption, you know, we, we are very much in a results-driven society. And and there there are good things about there are good things about that. I mean, we should have goals and we should have aspirations. But I feel like sometimes when we only focus on the prize, we we only focus on the end goal. We don't enjoy the journey there. Mm -hmm. And and kind of thinking about heaven is in that way that you said earlier, I think it kind of robs some of the joy that we're able to have here. And, and you know, I I think, I just, I guess I think I look at heaven as just the natural progression of, of what we do here leads to that. That it's not, we, we think about that and how we're going to get there. It's just we just do the things that we see and then he do it and then it's almost more of a natural progression. I know... You know, definitely with my sons, I mean, one of the focus I always, just, I didn't give them a lot of instruction along the way, but, you know, I always just encourage them, just do the right things and things will fall out as they should. Whether it's as you would want or not want, that, that's kind of almost secondary to the thing, but do the thing, do the right things along the way. And, and seeing, seeing injustices or whatever, that's, that's just, again, those, those are the things we should be drawn to. The, the results will just naturally be there. I think that we operate a lot of times with the idea of this life and the next life in a false dichotomy. That, that, that there's like a very, like, and I'm dead, and now I'm on to the next thing. You know, like there's a very um, clear and concise difference. And the two things often operate in opposites. We'll say, oh, this is horrible that we're experiencing this, but when we get to heaven, we won't experience this. Or, oh, it's what a beautiful peace, small sliver of heaven we're experiencing here, and we'll get to experience that in so much more fullness when we, when we get there, right? It's this, this very black and white, there's almost no crossover. We get a little bit of a taste, but that's kind of it. Um, and I think you're onto something, Lincoln, in that I think that there's a reason that, and I'm throwing this percentage out there, don't quote me on this, but there's a reason that like 80% of the instruction that we receive from Jesus in his ministry is about this life. There's a reason why so much, uh, the entire book of Isaiah, the entire Old Testament, because the Jews had kind of a misty idea of what the afterlife was anyway, um, the entire Old Testament instructions given by God through the prophets are about what we do in this life. There is something so, it's a mystery, I don't know why, there is something so incredibly important to God 
about what we're doing here. We read this in Matthew 25, right? When, the, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. The sheep that I will take into my kingdom do these things. They visit, the, they visit those in prison. They feed when they see the hungry. They clothe the naked, yada, yada, yada. Those that I will reject from my kingdom do these things. They don't do those, right? All those same things, they don't do them. And so there's, some, there's something so powerful to the Lord, something so integral to his reconciling plan about this <coughs> life, the one that we're doing here. Um, so I want to read to you guys a paragraph. When we first read this book about a year ago, we, had, we were just putting a down payment on a house and moving in. Um, and this, like, rocked my world. Many of us treat our homes as places of refuge and recuperation, where we can relax, unwind, and leave all the troubles of the day behind us. Some might say that this is the heart of what it means to be English. He's English, just so you know. <laughs> An Englishman's home is his castle. But Christians need to have a totally different approach to our hearts and our homes. A Christian's home is God's hospital. We turn expectations upside down when we see our homes as places of refuge and recuperation for others, not just for ourselves. <coughs> Stephen and I have been trying to live that out over the last night. <laughs> you guys, some of you are like, yes, we know. Um, <laughs> um, we've been trying to live that out over the last uh, nine months since we've been there. Eight months. Um, in fact, I think that the last three weeks are the first time, pretty much since we moved in, where we've had three weeks strung together that someone's not in our house, staying with us. Susie's staying with us this weekend. But. <laughs> um, my parents were with us while my dad was receiving treatment at Vanderbilt for two and a half months. My Two times. Um, my brother... My youngest brother was with us for six weeks. So I'm coming to you and saying that this rocked my world. I'm trying to live it out, and it's not easy. Um, it's our, our, the Lord blessed us. There's no logical way that our home came into our hands, right? Like, like it's, there's so many things about our home that were clearly the Lord saying, no, I want you to have an extra bedroom. No, I want you to have an extra meeting space in your home. Um, no, I want you to be in this particular neighborhood. Those things were clear over and over again to us. But what do you guys think about this? I mean, the fact that our homes are not completely for us. And this changes, I know this changes with children. I'm not putting any, like, decrees down that you have to have people in your home. Um, we do not yet have children, so I know that this changes, but I think this is important for us to talk out as Christians, that especially in the Western world, we have a certain idea of what home is, of what our houses are. And based upon what we're learning here, based upon what we're learning through Isaiah, what should our homes be? What can our homes be? What's the power of opening up your home? These aren't things you have to answer, but things that I would encourage you to think about. We've experienced over the last couple of months 
Um, and even before that, because for nine months before that, we lived in someone else's home with them. <laughs> so we've experienced, and this is hard for me as an introverted person who really likes my time by myself with my things and no one is touching them or talking to me. Um, We've experienced this over the last couple of years. We've experienced the kind of radical hospitality that makes life change, um, that makes life new, that shows you things about God that you would never experience elsewhere. Um, I think one of those things for me was when we were living in someone else's home, we were living probably for the first time in my adult existence with someone, with people that I deeply loved, but people that I deeply disagreed with on pretty much everything um, when it comes to politics and <laughs> social justice. <laughs> um, and as much as I had always relied on the book of Isaiah to guide me in, in caring for the oppressed and caring for the poor and, and being aware of everything in the world that was going on that was challenging the reconciliation of the world, um, I had to come to terms with the fact that if the gospel is true, my calling is to love the oppressor just as much as it is to love the oppressed. And if my if the gospel is true and the Lord cares more about how we treat people on the other side of disagreements than the disagreements themselves, which is something that I firmly believe, then my calling was to show the same grace and mercy and love and compassion to the oppressor as it was to the oppressed. And I don't know if you guys have ever had to do that for nine months at a time. <laughs> um, but it takes a lot of the Lord's mercy to be able to work that out. So I want to leave you guys with a quote this morning from Walter Brugeman. And let me make sure I can find it. You know, Samantha, you, I think that's a great point you made because, you know, we don't, we don't know the stories of the oppressors. We don't know their, their, the way their parents raised, you know what I'm saying, the influences, their Whereas, you know, we probably all grew up in loving homes with parents that loved us. They may have had, I'm just saying, parents that took them to a totally different place and only need, you know, people to show them grace. To show, you know, again, oftentimes they're almost painted as the, as the unforgivable, but they need, they need forgiveness just like it. Yeah. Yeah, and you speak more truth than you know. Than you know. The, the lives and the experiences, um, the ch childhoods, Sure. Of the so many of the people who Since have so much hate in them, the time, right? I think, I think that's a fundamental. You don't see that unless you live with them for nine months. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I want to leave you guys with this quote from Walter Brugeman for you to think over. Um, the church is always at its most daring and risking and dangerous and free when it sings a new song. Because then it sings that the power of the gospel will not let the world finally stay as it currently is. Not let the world what? Will not let the world finally stay as it currently is. The power of the gospel will not let the world finally stay as it currently is. So, thank you all for joining us this morning. Does anybody have any passing comments?
deep concerns. I have one more thing that I thought of while sure. you were saying all that at the end, that the song that we sing when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout the victory. And how silly that is of us to sing that it, I think it just helps create that mindset that that's not going to happen until we get to heaven. But Man, I'm not bashing the song. I don't know who wrote that song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we Obama might sing it that time. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it, that's, it just perpetuates that mindset. <laughs> yeah, there's so many things that are woven into our um, worship practices, our songs, our Bible quotes that we like to quote out of context. Like, there are so many of those things that are woven into that mindset of, Heaven is something that will clearly be distinct from this life. And and that's still, it's not, a, it's not something that's not true, right? Heaven will be distinct from this life. Um, but maybe not as black and white as we like to think about it. So, all right. Well, thank you all this morning. Um, announcements are up here if you need to review any of the dates. These are, sound like really cool conversations that are coming up. Um, and yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. We praise <laughs> Any prayer requests yeah. this week? How's your family? So my dad is headed down to MD Anderson in Texas on August the twenty second for a stem cell transplant. He will be there until December. It's a long time. <laughs> so uh shameless request. I know that Indy Anderson, there's a lot of groups that support families there for a long-term stay. So if anyone hears anybody or knows someone who's gone through that, we deeply appreciate Houston, some Texas. help finding some. If you know anyone some. in Houston, please let us know. Because pre-furnished apartments are really, really expensive, and insurance only covers yeah. a certain point. That's a long time. Yeah. So if you've got any connections in Houston, let us know about them. Um, but he's doing really well. He's been off of chemo for um, about two months now, but his numbers are still going down. So moving in, the, in a really good direction. Um, he's in really high spirits. He's not super happy about going to Texas for four months. Um, but my middle brother gets married this weekend, so we're... He's feeling good. Distractions. And he's yeah. able to go. So Lord answered a big yeah. prayer there to allow him. Yeah. yeah. And where are your parents from? Paducah, Kentucky. Okay. Yeah lifelong Paducah, Kentucky people. So they're leaving behind a long history of community and support to head down to a place that they don't know anyone, which I actually think would be really good for them. So um, consider it the exile of the Israelites. Always a good thing. Um, thank you for asking. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate all the prayers that you guys have um, put forth for us. You know, I have one more thought I was going to think of. You were talking about how our view toward home changes. So we're in the golden years. <laughs> and uh, so like lately, when we've been driving into our garage, we're like, oh, it just oh, it just feels so good to be home. We just want to be home. But the Lord kind of touched on me like, don't get too much into that because, you know, he's got a lot of things to do outside the home. And uh, you just have to walk in that place where you're not. You need to be able to be flexible. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I, and not there aren't, that there aren't times when you need home to be about you, right? Like you do. That's healthy. That's okay. Yeah. I'm giving everyone permission to have their home be about them for a while. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a good spot. Yeah, you got to find spot the balance where you 
love your home. It's a wonderful place, but there's also, you can't stay home all the time. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, so Stephen's going to pray for us, yeah. and then we'll go. Lord, just uh, thank you for this day you've given us, and Lord, thank you for an absolutely gorgeous day yesterday. Um, Lord, just be with us uh, throughout this week. Um, Lord, give us the space and some time this week to consider who you are, to think about you, to understand you without any need or want, but just simply a desire to understand more of who you are. Lord, just thank you for this community that you've surrounded us here with at Otter Creek, and thank you for the leaders of this church and the environment to have the conversation that we've had today to question who you are openly and with community. Lord, just thank you for all that you do. Just thank you. Amen. Amen.